This morning we are on chapter 15 of the Confession, and uh, the subject is entitled, Of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation. Uh, Now before I begin, I want to highlight something that I think it's important, I think it's significant to to this series, but especially this chapter. Uh, It's something that I think we've pointed out multiple times before. Uh, It's with with, uh, respect to the order in which these chapters are placed. Uh, I believe that the divines that formulated our confession knew what they were doing when they put together this document. In particular, uh, the, the way that they order each of the subjects. Uh, now, specifically with the subject that we're discussing today, it makes sense that the chapter of repentance was placed after the uh, chapter of saving faith. Now, you'll probably hear that in the future uh, throughout the teaching series it seems that each chapter, each subject is put in a specific way that helps, uh, helps us understand uh, specifically the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation, and then the other doctrines that follow in the later chapters of the Confession. That order is, is significant. So keep an eye on that as we go through, the, uh, through this teaching series on the Confession. <clears throat> um, I want to define, first of all, uh, the term repentance. Again, that's the subject for today. Repentance unto life and salvation. And I want to I define what we mean when we say repentance. Uh, this is a word that's often used in theology, but its meaning gets lost. We say it all the time. After a while, we kind of take, take it for granted what, what the actual definition of repentance means, at least what the Bible says it means. I'll start by saying that the word is translated in English as repentance, but really it is used in different ways in the Bible. Uh, The first way is to feel sorry for something, right? Repentance, to feel sorry for something. This deals more with having a, like a personal regret. Uh, You see that word used a lot in the book of Judges with, with Israel. The second way is to turn away from something, this deals more with a changing of direction or path. And you see that type of language in 1 Kings, uh, Isaiah. In fact, the Hebrew has two different words for it. The first word is nakam, or nakam, which is the feeling sorry uh, version. And shuv, which is the other one, which is the turning away or to moving away from a certain path changing your path. Uh, <clears throat> it's not until later, as you read the, read the Bible, not, not until later in Scripture that we see the word used in a more religious or ethical sense. You know, this calling to repentance. For example, oftentimes in Scripture we see a prophet with a message from God calling men to repent. Right? Or even Jesus himself. You see this in Matthew 4.17. Uh, where it says, uh, from, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in that sense, the repentance doesn't depart much from the other two uh, definitions that I mentioned, the other two uses. However, in this use, the word is metanoia. Now, before I explain metanoia, uh, just a, kind of like a, a quick side note, the Roman Catholic Church early on had mistranslated this word 
because of their use of the Latin Vulgate. And instead of metanoia, they translated the word to be penitentium agite, or agite, <clears throat> penitentium agite, which means do penance, not repent in the sense of turn and change your path. The way that the Roman Catholic Church early on translated it, being that they were using the Latin Vulgate, he translated that use, that word, do penance. <clears throat> and this is a big deal. Because imagine what that does to the message of salvation, right? If we're called to do penance, this changes drastically the way in which we're saved. At least in the Roman Catholic Church, this means that when you, when you commit a sin, a Christian must be engaged in the practices of contrition, Confession to the priest, acceptance of a, a form of self-punishment, and finally an authorized absolution of your sin by a priest. And this is the result of a mistranslation of the text. However, uh, later on, and, and we spoke a little bit about this uh, when we were doing our series in the Reformation, uh, Erasmus, he suggested a better translation from, from the Latin, which is... Uh, Recipicence, or recipicence, <clears throat> which was more like uh, come to your senses, not do penance, but come to your senses. And then Luther, he insisted that the Greek noun was metanoia, which is kind of how we translate it now, um, which refers to a change of mind and heart, a change of mind and heart. That's that's the uh, the proper uh, translation of the word when it's used, especially in the New Testament. And Luther was right. In fact, uh, even the latest NAB Bible, which is the Catholic Bible, the American Catholic Bible, even in the latest version, uh, uh, in their recent revised version, um, you'll see the word repent. And so they were able to translate it from the Greek and see that the, the word, the proper term is, is repent instead of do penance, in the sense where there needs to be sort of a change of mind or a change of heart. Now, even though they even though they have this revised Bible, the Roman Catholic Church continues to hold to uh, a penance understanding uh, of their system of salvation. However, what was recovered in the Reformation was this proper and biblical understanding that when the Bible calls us to repent, it isn't calling us to a system of penance, <clears throat> but a coming to our senses, a change of mind and heart an acknowledgement of our sins, a turning away from it. Uh, and this is what true repentance is. And so we're going we're gonna to use that definition as we, as we go through the chapter and, uh, and, and talk about the word repentance. Yes, brother. Mm -hmm. They actually changed the name of the sacrament from penance to the sacrament of reconciliation. Interesting. So the idea is slightly shifted, uh -huh. but the, the way you describe it yeah. is exactly... Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It it seems that they don't want to sort of let that go in a sense. Yeah. And, and, and rather than you can, you can go to penance individually mm -hmm. and confess to a priest, or the sacrament of reconciliation be done as a community. Wow. So yeah. since that attitude is going to shift, not only in the translation but how they think about the sacrament. Wow, that, that's again, interesting. It's still yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's go to uh, paragraph one. Can I have someone read paragraph one? <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> so I'll start by saying that this whole chapter is different than the Westminster Confession. I mentioned before in the class that uh, when you look at our confession, it's very similar to the Westminster. We, we took a lot from it. Also, the Savoy Declaration, which was the Congregationalist uh, document or statement of faith. <clears throat> Here in this chapter, we're departing from the Westminster a little bit. Not, not in our understanding of repentance. We're the same. Uh, but it seems that the particular Baptists sided more with the Savoy uh, in this one, in this chapter. And there, I, I think the reason for breaking away from the Westminster seems to be for the sake of emphasizing a few things about repentance that are probably more related to Baptist polity. <clears throat> for example, being that the Baptists didn't baptize infants, Baptist church members, by definition, were not born as Christians, right? Uh, as they understood it. You weren't just born into a covenant community. Uh, which meant that many of their members were able to have, uh, or, or able to have uh, sort of a picture of church members who had an old life and a new life. That was more distinguishable. Uh, they were able to distinguish their life before Christ and their life in Christ. And unlike many of our other, Christ, other Christian traditions, a person isn't in covenant with Christ until he or she experiences true conversion. And so we, we as Baptists, you're a member because you're saved. You're not a member because you were born from saved parents, um, unlike other Christian traditions. <clears throat> so that's something that, that's unique to the Baptists. <clears throat> and you'll notice a few things as we read the first paragraph there, um, it, it seems to have these presuppositions in mind. Notice that it begins by stating that some of the elect are converted after their early years. This is not to deny the possibility of a child being converted, but rather it's to state that some people repent and some come to Christ at a later time in their life. <clears throat> the, confession, the confession immediately notes that these older converts have lived in the natural state for a time and served various evil desires and pleasures. This is to say that later, or the later in life one is converted, the longer one has, has served their various lusts and pleasures. Now, in contrast, those who are converted at a young age have less time in their service in the world than in their service in their lusts. Right? That makes sense. That's, that's understood. That's clear. And the confession continue, continues on by stating that God gives these repentance to life as part of their effectual calling. Now this doesn't mean that, this doesn't mean that they are the only ones that need repentance. Just because you were born again later on in your life, okay, you're the ones that need repentance. That's not what it's saying. When you consider the whole context, this paragraph is focused on the unique situation of the older convert, which, generally speaking, has more to repent of. And this would, have been, this would have been a needed thing to address, especially in their time. Uh, this is the beginning of uh, sort of a Baptist theology. 
<clears throat> this weight of sin that uh, is experienced by people who come, come to Christ later on may result in what uh, Dr. Sam Waldron, he, he has a commentary on the confession. Uh, it may result in what Dr. Sam Waldron calls a crisis experience of repentance. These are folks with bigger testimonies, right? Have you ever been in a gathering with Christians and someone comes and they give their testimony? People coming in, coming in later on in their life, they tend to have a bigger testimony or testimony stories. Uh, this kind of crisis experience testimony is likely to occur, uh, is not likely to occur in the younger uh, convert. Like if you were, I don't know what's happening in our power. Okay. <laughs> Um, if you were to come at an early age, uh, you, you, don't, you, you may or may not necessarily have a, a big conversion story, especially if you were a, a younger person raised in a Christian home. Yes? Yes. Yeah, perfect example. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, you see the differences there, one who is a younger and one who is obviously older who has had... Uh, a huge testimony, which is really the what makes Paul who he is. Uh, so perfect example. So with that said, it's important to make this point clear that all converts, whether you're old or young, you're all effectually called, right? If you're a Christian, if you're elect, you're effectually called, and you're also given repentance. So if you were converted at a very young age, you grew up in a Christian home, and you just at some point happen to believe the faith, you still have a, a conversion experience. There's still a repentance that happens in your life. Um, and, and, and that's important to know. The, the testimony, the stories may be different when you hear it from someone who came to Christ later. But nonetheless, the experience is the same as far as what happens to your soul. Um, <clears throat> this means that not every Christian is going to have a big story to tell. But we can all relate in the fact that we've come to Christ, we've had to repent of our sins. Uh, people often ask me, what's my testimony? Um, it, it's not a big story. I point them to Ephesians 2 often. This doesn't mean that my salvation is not a miracle. My salvation is very much a miracle. I was as dead in my sins as any other person. However, each convert experiences that at different levels. Presumably, the crisis of repentance will be greater in those who have committed more actual sin, logically. Uh, and certainly the older convert who had, who had been indulging in various lusts and pleasures of sin will exude a more drastic uh, lifestyle or behavior change in their repentance. Well, we see this in Scripture, uh, Titus 3, 3 through 5, which says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the scripture here uh, definitely speaks of all elect sinners, but it is especially applicable to those who are, who are coming to faith later on, being that they, they, they've lived by their passions for, for a longer time. Outwardly, the change in lifestyle of a young convert 
will not necessarily be as drastic as the one who has developed more of a sinful pattern or have had sinful behaviors over the course of their life, the longer life. Now, again, I'm just speaking about exper- ex- uh, exper- uh, experiential distinctions, not necessarily theological ones. Theologically, both young and old were dead in their sins and, and in need of repentance. Now, it seems that our Baptist forefathers had several practical concerns in making this distinction. Mainly, they wanted to make sure that no one could accuse them of believing that all Christians must have a, some sort of crisis conversion, uh, like, the one, like the Philippian jailer, for example. True repentance does not require a dramatic crisis story in order for it to be authentic, so keep that in mind. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and look at uh, paragraph two. Can someone read paragraph two? Thank you. So here we see uh, from the first sentence, it says, there is no one who does good and does not sin. No one. And we get this from, I'd say, two biblical passages that I can think of here. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Can someone read that? Okay, and then Romans 3.12. Yep, not even one. And this is a universal reality of all mankind. Now, because of the fall, all mankind has inherited guilt, and they've inherited corruption, and are inclined to sin. That's... That's mankind's inclination. And from this point, the confession continues by saying, even the best, referring to even the most moral, may fall into great sins and offenses through the power and deceitfulness of the corruption in them along with the strength of temptation. In other words, even even some of us here are uh, capable of committing horrific sins, things beyond your imagination right now. You are capable of doing that. Now, the only thing that's holding you back, of course, is the Spirit of God. But, uh, again, even the best may fall into great sins and offenses. A lot of what we're reading with regard to man being sinful is referring to the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of uh, human radical corruption. And we understand that due to the fall, everyone is sinful. It follows that this sinful reality applies even to the best man. This, is, this applies to everyone, from the Pope to Mother Teresa to the Catholic priest to a monk or a nun. No one does good, not even one. And we know from chapters 6, 9, and 13 in the Confession that even the regenerate, those who are saved, there remains corruption from the fall. Our flesh makes things seem good and desirable that is actually evil and harmful. But we do not see it because we're deceived by this remaining corruption. And so God is revealing these corruptions in us slowly. He's being very gracious to us. As we sit under the word, 
as we receive the means of grace, God's Spirit is revealing more and more uh, what's remaining in, in, your, in your flesh, in your corruption. Even the best of godly men and women may be deceived and fall into great sin, and it doesn't help that Satan in the world, on top of that, seeks to provoke you to sin. And at the same time, our sinful nature, which results in sinful actions, also provokes God's wrath. And this is what Moses says of the people of Israel. We see it in Deuteronomy 31:29, where it says, For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. See that, provoking him to anger. Now regarding these great sins and and provocations, the confession adds on top of that, therefore God has mercifully provided in the covenant of grace that believers who sin and fall will be renewed through repentance, or through repentance to salvation. So, God is well aware of this situation. He's not surprised, like, oh no, the people that I've created have fallen away, what am I going to do? No, before the foundations of the world, he's, he's planned, he's decreed that he would make a covenant with his people. And in this covenant, he would not only uh, save you by declaring you just, but he would uh, transform your heart. He will instill in you a fear of God. So if you're a believer today, this is what you experience, hopefully. He would cause you to repent anytime you steer away from God. And so this is a way that God has... has, uh, decided to preserve you and save you and bring you into the kingdom of God um, being that on your own you would choose the opposite way. If, if you lived according to the flesh, you would, you would not choose God. You would not pursue God. Yet God said, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to make a covenant with these people and I would assure them that, uh, that they would persevere. So the reason why God has and will not pour out his wrath on us, even though we deserve it, those who are Christians, is because we've entered into this covenant that I'm talking about with him. He has established a new covenant with a select people, namely those who turn to Christ in faith. This is called the covenant of grace. The covenant was spoken of in Jeremiah 32, 40. Can someone read that passage for us? Notice the language. <clears throat> I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Everlasting. Okay, that's key word number one. Then it says that I will, I, he's speaking about himself. In this covenant, I'm going to have a different disposition towards them. Because apart from this covenant, I'm going to have a wrathful disposition towards them. Because apart from a, co- a, a certain kind of covenant of grace, they're all condemned. They're not following my law. So notice how he begins by speaking about his disposition first. He says that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Meaning that everything that he does to the people who are in the covenant of grace with him, those those of us who are united to Christ, 
he is going to constantly do good to you. Isn't that interesting? He's always going to do good to you. His wrath is, is never going to be poured against you. Now, you may say, oh, I, I'm always punished by God sometimes. God makes things happen to where I, I feel disciplined by God. Hey, listen, it's not, when, when you're disciplined by God, it's because he loves you and he's working towards your good. You're not actually being punished. The word punished is a legal term that means that you're guilty of something. In Christ, God has declared you not guilty. Therefore, if you enter into this covenant, he will not turn away from doing good to you. Look what he says here. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And the thing is, even, even though God does good to you, we still have that tendency to move away, to drive away. And yet, he says, I will make sure that they won't fall away. I will put the fear in them and they would remain in my covenant. And sometimes it doesn't seem like good, but it is good. Amen. It's good for us. That's right. For him to correct us. Yes, yes. It seems the other thing is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's right. But fear is fear. It's not just a lot of people say it's respect. Right. Fear is real fear. That's right. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's right. Amen. We understand fear in the spiritual sense. We will rejoice. Amen. He has shown us. Amen. It really is a, a, a form of grace to us. Well, fear should bring us to repentance. Amen. And then, then we can know the love of God and, and rejoice in Him. But fear brings us to that brokenness to be Amen. Yeah. Amen. So we, we see that the covenant of grace provides for a renewal for believers. You know, when we fall away, we have this, this uh, sort of outlet or this, this method where we can be renewed again with God. Uh, and this renewal is this experience of repentance. And so in this covenant of grace, God provides a renewal for believers who have greatly sinned against him. And we see in this passage, God putting his fear in them that they may not turn from God. However, notice that the covenant does not promise that they will not sin. It doesn't say that in the new covenant you're not going to sin. But, but on the contrary, that he will keep them from turning away from him. In other words, God's salvation is a salvation that recognizes that we are hopeless sinners apart from him, apart from the covenant. Yet he's made a way for us to be kept by him. And in this new covenant, if we were to stray away, his spirit would cause us to eventually repent and turn back to him. How many of you have experienced that? You know, you kind of, you get upset about something or something happens to you. You kind of break away from fellowship. You, you, you sin and you, you don't want to deal with it right away. But at some point you find yourself, maybe days later, sometimes weeks, unfortunately. But you find yourself on your knees again. Something reminds you of the goodness of God. You find yourself repenting and crying out, almost as if you can't live apart from, from that communion with God. And that's God's spirit. That's a sign that you're saved. In this new covenant, if we were to stray away, his spirit will cause you to eventually repent and turn back to him. And this is an amazing reality for a Christian. If you're truly his, he would make sure that you would be on your knees crying out, forgive me, before you stray away too far. And this is why repentance needs to be understood as a grace given to us in Christ. It's a grace that keeps us in the faith until the end. A true believer who's in the covenant of grace may not repent immediately. He, he or she may go through uh, an, an, an extensive period 
of, of backsliding, but eventually their repentance will come and they'll be renewed through repentance. And we see this reflected in Jesus' own words. You see this in Luke 22, 31, 32, where it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's almost this confidence in Christ, and rightly so, he's, he's, he's Christ. But there's this confidence that those who are his will eventually turn back. It seems to be that the decree of God is in effect there. Uh, you see Christ uh, praying for one and not the other. Uh, yeah, amen. Now, we, we aren't always able to judge the, backs, the backslider's true state. Not always. Whether he or she is in Christ or not. Sometimes we see somebody backsliding and, you know, sometimes we want to jump to a conclusion about their life. Sometimes it's necessary, sometimes we need to be patient. But given the provision in the covenant of grace, we are assured that true believers will be renewed through repentance eventually. We obviously hope sooner or later, right? And this doesn't mean that church discipline can't be done towards them if it's called for. Oftentimes, it's the church discipline that actually helps them return, right? It's the means in which God brings them back often. Um, but for the most part, we, we have to believe in the promises that are, are in the covenant of grace before we sort of try to rationalize it and make a decision on our own of what the state of the soul of somebody is, especially if we've seen them uh, bear fruit at some point. Oftentimes, the uh, restoration through repentance um, that that comes from that believer who strayed away, oftentimes the church discipline helps them uh, come back again. And restoration through repentance is always the primary goal of church discipline. But again, we must trust that whatever God has promised to do for those in the covenant, he'll keep that promise, and he would keep us through his grace. Uh, and, and one of those ways that he keeps us is this gift of repentance. Uh, he convicts your heart, and you fall on your knees. Yes? When we feel guilty, we should feel guilty. That's right. Tries to drown it, tries to act like we shouldn't feel guilty. When we are, we should. That's right. Because it brings us to repentance. Amen. Yeah. That's what God uses to help us come. Yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, it's important that we keep a biblical uh, perspective on on the conscience, on on guilt, and oftentimes, you know, the doctors who don't share that worldview. Um, are, going to, are going to misdiagnose somebody and misapply um, certain practices in hopes for a certain solution that's not biblical. They make a good point. That's right, yeah. I was going to say that passage that you brought up about Jeremiah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's 
Yeah. That, that issue of uh, a covenant being made that uh, not only calls out to a people to come, hmm. but also provides every requirement for the covenant to stand yeah. is what makes that new covenant good, new, different, and the gospel this gift yeah. to the people of God. Yeah. Because there is Yeah, amen. Well said. I think uh, it really is what makes the gospel good, what makes the new covenant new and good. Um, amen. Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at paragraph three. <clears throat> Can someone read paragraph three? Okay, this is probably my favorite paragraph because it's packed with so much stuff. So, so follow me, okay? I want, I want us to observe carefully the first sentence. <clears throat> it begins by stating that this saving repentance is a gospel grace. The saving repentance is a gospel grace. What does this mean? How is a saving repentance a gospel grace? Aren't repentance and gospel grace two different things? Isn't, repent, isn't repentance a prerequisite for receiving grace? Aren't they two separate categories? <clears throat> now, this is a question that has to be understood both exegetically, right? Looking through scriptures, understanding what the Bible says in each verse. But it's also something that has to be understood theologically. So, you know, when you read your Bible... Don't just pull out a passage and, and try to find verses that have has that keyword. Like you, you can Google, uh, you know, gospel grace or uh, gospel repentance and find all verses that say something about it. But that's not how you do theology. You have to pull out the verses, but you have to also consider what all the verses together say. What, what is the theology of the Bible as a whole? What the confession is stating when it states that repentance is a gospel grace is, first of all, that repentance is constantly connected to the preaching of the gospel. That's number one. Uh, and, and it's very much a commandment to the hearers, okay? So I'll start with that. There's other things about it. We'll get into it. But first of all, we see that uh, repentance is uh, very much part of the preaching of the gospel, Okay? John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles preached repentance and faith as a gospel command. And we know that the gospel proper, right, the gospel proper is really the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. So when you think of what is the gospel, it really has nothing to do with us immediately. It has to do with Christ, his life, death, resurrection. It's a historical event. That's the gospel proper. However, when we present the gospel, we see how the apostles would include faith 
and repentance as the listener's proper response to the gospel, right? So when you preach the gospel, it's not like here's some random information. It's here's information. I have to tell you how it's relevance to you. God is calling you to take this information and repent, right? Repent, come to faith, believe in it. Those are uh, proper responses to this historical event, to this, this, this information. Now, when you look at, at certain passages where the gospel is preached, sometimes only repentance is mentioned. You see that in Matthew 3, 2, or Acts 5, 31. Sometimes only faith is mentioned. You see that in John 3, 16, Acts 16, 31, and everyone loves John 3, 16. So a lot of churches just take that as their method of preaching the gospel. They'll just say, hey, just believe and confess, and you're in. So again, you, you, you see that in some passages it calls us to repent, some passages it doesn't mention it. But implied within faith is repentance, and implied uh, in repentance is this understanding of faith. Both, you, you can't separate the two, right? Now, what does the saving repentance look like? Uh, the confession states that when the Spirit makes the sinner aware of his or her many evils of the sin, he or she, you'll notice there in the confession, it says, by faith in Christ, humble themselves for it with godly sorrow, hatred of it, and self-loathing. They pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way and everything. Uh, this describes the character or nature of saving repentance. That supernatural grace that cannot be genuinely replicated by mere uh, intuition or the mere will of man. Now this is what makes repentance difference, different. And this is why it's important to take what it says in the first sentence where it says that this repentance is a gospel repentance. This is what makes, because repentance is a word that can be used by even a worldly person, a person who's not even a Christian. They can repent of stuff. There's people who repent of their old diet, right? Like, I got to stop eating this way. I repent. I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to start eating right, right? It's a change of path. Certain convictions in their heart that makes them feel like, oh, this is gross food. But what makes, what makes uh, Christian repentance different? What makes it uh, distinct from other repentances? Well, it's that word, uh, gospel repentance. The older version of the confession says uh, evangelical repentance. And this is what makes it different. It's different because it's, not, it's nothing like the feeling of regret that a person who isn't regenerate may feel. Saving repentance is not merely a turning from, say, the sin of drunkenness, right? Out of a desire for a better life. Now, how many times have we heard people say, yeah, I want to stop doing drugs because I want to live a better life? Or uh, they'll say, I want to start going to church because I need to get my life in order. That's the big one. I hear that all the time. I need to get my life right, so I'm going to go start going to church. Another one that I've heard way too many times is, yeah, you should raise your children in church so that they can develop a good conscience and not get into much trouble. You know, grandparents, your parents, they'll tell you, raise your kids in church so that they can have a good conscience, they can develop good habits so that they don't get in trouble. 
as if it has any eternal value. <clears throat> now, leaving drugs behind and getting your life in order, uh, changing your diet, raising your kids in church, those are all good things. Um, however, notice that none of these things have anything to do with Christ and him crucified. And that's what makes this kind of repentance different. It's a gospel repentance. Those things have nothing to do with saving repentance and true faith in Christ. For example, there are plenty of unconverted drunkards coming out of treatment centers who remain sober. We ought to be happy for these people, overcoming their vices by common grace, but that's not the same thing as the gospel grace of saving repentance. Notice that the confession says that this repentance is done by faith in Christ. This repentance has, as its object, faith in Christ. And so the repentance occurs by faith. Faith is very much present and acting in the saving repentance. Now this brings me to, to a controversy. There's a controversy of what comes first in the order of salvation. Do you have faith first and then you repent? Or is repentance a prerequisite in order for you to have faith? What comes first? Okay, let's see. We'll find out. Let me, let me, let me hear some ideas. What do you think, Vitor? Do you think that faith uh, is first? Or? Okay. All right, I got, I got five minutes to, uh, to answer your, your questions. I was going to say, uh, John 3, you must be born again first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, what do you think, uh, Scott? Yes. Amen. Amen. All right, let's see. <clears throat> There's been questions about faith preceding repentance, uh, but I'll, I'll say this. Uh, it's evident both in the confession that repentance is a gospel grace um, so I would say that you can't receive it apart from union with Christ because it's a gospel grace. Let me explain myself. Apart from, apart from union with Christ, what what can you produce that's good? Nothing. It would be a fleshly, false form of repentance. And we read in Hebrews 11.6 that faith is a prerequisite for all good work. Right? Hebrews 6.11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, Faith, according to the word, is what unites us to Christ. In Christ is where we obtain all of our spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1.3. This includes faith itself, but this also includes the gift of repentance, which is a grace that keeps us in the faith. 
However, many falsely believe that repentance, even before having a regenerate heart, is first required in order to make us qualified for Jesus to forgive us. This is the idea that one must find something in themselves to turn from their sins before they can come to faith in Christ. And, ladies and gentlemen, that's legalism. That's legalism. That's why we need to sort these things out in our heads. Repentance is a grace of God, which we receive by virtue of our union with Christ. Repentance does not unite us to Christ. It's not sola scriptura, soli deo gloria, solus repentance. No, it's sola fide, solus Christus, right? It's by faith alone. By faith we're united to Christ. We are united to Christ and we receive all the benefits of Christ, one being the gift of repentance. We don't receive repentance from the Spirit of God until we are first joined to Christ in faith. We're united to Christ by faith alone, not repentance alone. I agree with John Calvin says. He says, from the tree of faith comes the fruit of repentance. The two are interdependent responses, each incomplete without the other. This is to say that you know, when you think about it, when you think about your own experience in salvation, you're, you probably don't remember what came first. It, it probably happened all at once, obviously. Uh, but a logical order uh, is important to understand and to have. And here's the reason why. You have to consider what happens when the kind of repentance that you see in a person is not born out of an understanding of the free grace of the gospel. What happens when the repentance is not an evangelical or a gospel repentance and only brought out by fiery threats of Mount Sinai and not the bloody cross of Christ? What happens? The answer is that it would only produce worldly sorrows. I mean, you've seen these guys out in downtown. You've seen them out in the city. And, and they're preaching the law to people. Now, I have nothing against preaching the law. But the false assumption is that somehow, some way, by preaching only the law, these people will first come to terms with their guilt. When, when we read in Scripture that the person doesn't have that ability. And oftentimes what ends up happening is that um, the law, especially if, if they're non-elect, the law only provokes them to rebel against God even more, only uh, puts them in a more guiltier situation. <clears throat> uh, that in and of itself cannot lead to true repentance. True repentance already has in its scope an apprehension of the mercy of Christ. It is a repentance that has seen the gospel and believed it, which makes for a repentance that truly hits the soul. It's a repentance that causes a person to turn from his sins, not merely out of a fear of consequences, but because of what his sins did to the Savior. And that's why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It isn't merely just a presentation of the law. Um, it, it's not a presentation of the law that breaks a person. It's a presentation of the law in light of what Jesus Christ did to pay for it. Uh, That's right. Yeah. That's different from 
Thank you. Guys, I know there's a lot to say. i got to cut it short, write it down. I think we only have one question back there, and it's been like 15 chapters in. So if you, if you have a question or comment, put it in the box, and we'll try to get to it. Or if you want to see me after, we'll, we'll chat. Um, I just want to make a quick point. <clears throat> um, this is where you get a lot of <clears throat> like self-flagellation, sort of a uh, a heavy dependence on your repentance as a way of salvation. You see that kind of stuff sort of trickle in, even in evangelical churches. <clears throat> this is why it's important to understand uh, these concepts of law and gospel uh, and where repentance, or the role of repentance, uh, plays in, uh, in the life of a believer. I can't get to paragraph four and five, unfortunately, um, but look at those paragraphs, see how it relates to everything that we talked about. I wanted to read uh, something that I think is, is relevant to what we were talking about in regards to repentance as sort of a prerequisite in order for you to be saved and how that, that's not consistent with Scripture. <clears throat> but repentance as a, a gospel grace. Uh, it, if, if you understand that incorrectly, what you end up having is a, a form of... Uh, preparationalism, right? You, you somehow have to get right here before you're worthy of receiving the gospel. That could be dangerous. But there's a hymn, uh, number 334, and, and I noticed this as I was reading, as I was singing it, um, and I noticed in, in verse 3, it speaks a lot to the subject. Uh, let me read it to you. It says, Let not conscience make you linger, this is, by the way, this is the hymn, uh, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. It says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Uh, and then it goes on, the older versions continue by saying, This he gives you, this he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's glimmering being. So I thought it was fitting to the subject. Uh, so if you ever come around to sing the song, just think about some of the things that we talked about. Um, the goodness of the gospel, that everything that we need is found in, in Christ. Don't, if you're not a believer, don't try to prepare yourself to come to Christ. Everything that you need, including a repented heart, is found in Christ. So just run to him, seek after him. Amen? Uh, let me pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you uh, for this time. Thank you that you've allowed us to come together and, and discuss this subject. We thank you for uniting us to Christ through faith. And in our union with Christ, we've been given the ability and desire to repent from sin and to pursue a life in obedience to you. And we have all this in Christ. So we thank you. And may we always do so by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.